some doctrine. And a doctrine that we're discussing for the last couple of weeks has been eschatology. And um, it's been a, a crazy road. We're going to jump right in. If you need Bibles, raise your hand. Uh, it's going to be a lot of text on the screen. Uh, if you want a pen or pencil, raise your hand. If you need to um, have paper to write on, if you turn on the back um, of your program, you should have enough, hopefully, uh, room there. I want to turn your notice to when you leave here, um, I wish I could have had the books with me right now. I brought a bunch of uh, bibliography, a bunch of biblical resources, bibliographies out back. So when you go out the foyer to the left, uh, you'll see some different commentaries. Um, One book um, that's really good is called Apocalyptic Imagination. Um, It's it's a very good extra biblical resource that helps you understand genre writing, specifically apocalyptic. Um, that I would propose that if you don't really understand the mindset of a first century Jew, um, specifically in this genre, it'll be hard for you to appropriately articulate, in my opinion, Revelation. And so there's a bunch of books that I have out there for your liking. Another thing is um, what I'm going to do here is is the, last, the first week we went through the general overview. Second week I tried to do something. I tried to talk about uh, the way to sort of look at the book as a whole. And I kind of feel like, in a nutshell, you guys are really great. I feel like I was on a horse you know, on a big old bull, and then it flopped me off, you know, kind of deal. And you guys are really gracious. And so this week is my attempt to jump back on the bull, all right? And, and I'm trying to go a new route. I'm trying to figure out how do, how do I get at least some wins out of this, right? Um, before, because I think the best way I'm going to get the best win is when we exegete the whole book. So I look forward to doing Revelation as one of our books um, in the near future. Not super near, so don't get scared, but near future down the road. So, um, but um, considering what we're trying to do in such a short amount of time, what I'm going to do today is I wanted to, I actually want to, um, in an itemized fashion, look at a few topics. So I'm going another route, because I feel like last week's route didn't work. All right? And I feel like you need more time to actually understand the scope of the book than for 30 or 40 minutes. So for, you, for those of you who, who need to, if you want to know that, though, and I'm hoping you do, um, I have a document that I'm so willing to send you guys. It's my cliff notes to a book that I read, um, basically the, the commentary of Revelation by G.K. Bill. I think it's an unbelievable book. Uh, my notes are about 114, 118 pages. The book is like 1,200 pages, so I'm blessing you. Um, so... What I want to do is, if you want that, um, I would love to give that to you. We would love to send that to you through email, but I don't want to waste our resources, so I would need you to pursue us and please write down your name, and we'll have a little sign-up list, and you can write it down, and then that will allow me to, to move forward. Okay, I just want to give you hundreds of pieces of paper, and then I'll find them all up and down Mac. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> brothers learning about eschatology. You know, homie's like, yeah, I didn't know about So, um, so, so. So, yeah, you can do that. All right, guys? Now, what we're going to do today, so we're going to look at topics. Now, it's going to be crazy a little bit, but I want you guys, as much as you can, stay there with me, okay, guys? Remember, like, now, the tendency is to be, oh, man, this is just intense. I want you to stay, stay in it with me, okay, and see if we can, we can get somewhere. I'm going, to, I'm going to field some questions, but I might have to play you a little bit today just to make sure I can get through the information. What I want to do is get through some of the information and then make sure and see if I haven't answered your question and then ask questions. So I think I'm going to do info, pause, info, pause versus itemized questions, okay? If you're new, we just ask questions, so that's why I'm giving the ground rules again because our people are kind of crazy. So... So uh, this time, let me go through some stuff and then see what you guys think, okay? All right, here we go. Let's go for it, guys. All right, so here's the first one we're going to do. Um, we're going to look at the beast. And the reason I'm starting with the beast, 
Uh, so we're doing Revelation, and basically, in a nutshell, I feel bad because if you're new here, man, you're like, we, we, didn't walk, we went through three, four cities, you're on this train, you thought you were in Boston, we in Cleveland, so it's kind of crazy. Um, we were, yeah, so we, <laughs> I feel kind of bad. Hopefully you can just jump on the back of the train kind of deal and, and get some stuff these last couple weeks, okay? Uh, right now we're talking about the beast because at the end of our conversation, uh, one of my sisters brought a good point. It was like, so the, the issue was, is the beast... Uh, figurative or literal, in a nutshell? Is this a beast? Is this going to be a really mean, nasty beast? Um, I think this can answer the question. If this is not a big old nasty beast, then we've got to say, well, what is this? Okay? And we're talking about the book of Revelation, eschatology meaning uh, eschatos, last, or the last, and, and ology, the study of, the study of the last things, what's happening to us as a people of God, um, you know, as a people of God, what's happening with God and his angels, what's happening with demons, what's happening with the world and creation, like what's going to happen uh, with all these things. Uh, Mac Ave, um, and extremely convinced of this, trying to be diplomatic, but extremely convinced of this, that the most important time in history is the cross and resurrection, that what's going to happen is all based on what has happened, and that all the big stuff happened at the resurrection and the cross. Now, I would propose Jesus reigning, Satan being defeated, um, and, and we're going to go through that in a little bit. And that based on that, that we have now, in essence, a whole new reality. But you only can see the reality if you have a spiritual glasses. And so that's the tenant. That's that's where you. If you're here at MacAv, this is where we're. This is where we're coming from. This is how we do ministry. This is how we do life. And so that's why we ask you. So now we're saying, when you become a believer, we're saying you've entered into a spiritual realm unlike natural man, and that now you are actually reigning with Christ right now. That Satan's role is something very interesting is that he has been defeated, but not defeated like you and I think. doesn't mean there's a sensation of evil. doesn't mean that there's no more evil, because I would propose that God, our, our sovereign king, is actually using evil for his purposes twofold, basically to bring judgment upon the unbeliever and to sanctify and perfect the believer. I'm just giving you sort of the cliff notes. <laughs> All right, and so, and, and, and I would propose that you can, you can see this throughout my, I would say the whole canon for that matter, specifically in the book of Revelation in which we're studying. Okay, so you have this new creation. Jesus dies, rises from the dead. New creation busts in this old creation. And then what's happening with the people of God is we're these mustard seeds and we're like just retelling Jesus' story and saying, guys, let me tell you, what happened with Jesus is real. And I can tell you that his kingdom is coming because his kingdom has come in me. And then we extend his kingdom in times and places as we proclaim his glory through our lives. And then one day what God is going to do, as we have been faithful, just reminding the world of that reality, being prophets, if you will, the two witnesses I will propose in Revelation, being prophets, as you will, and then the world says you're crazy, and then as, as it were, the world kills us. The world says, I'm, I'm through with you. Then Jesus will come in his second coming, and he will continually finish and make an external reality what he has made spiritual. That's the, the cliff notes. I add one caveat there, that one thing he will do that's a little different, he has sealed Satan. He has placed Satan under a seal. He's bound. But I would propose it doesn't mean that he, doesn't, he can't do evil anymore, but actually I would propose that he's been bound from, from, um, from deceiving specifically the Gentiles, from coming into the faith. So basically, he, he said, Jesus is like, I'm binding you so that the, the nations can know me. 
And that when the nations know him, true Israel, which we're going to go through in a moment, then what happens when it all happens and God's people all gather together and he said, this is my crew. He's going to take us all home. He's going to fully take take Satan, demons, evil and death. And he's going to toss it um, into the lake of fire. And we're going to go party with Jesus. Um, That's the cliff notes. So in those cliff notes, and, and guys, I know some of you guys like, are disagreeing and got like, oh, what about this? What about the dragon and 144,000? And I'm sorry, I know I want to go through all that stuff. Um, but you, all the rest of y'all leave the church, and I'm trying to figure out how to balance all that. You know what I'm saying? So, so that's why I want to give you the cliff notes, give you some bibliographies. I can argue with you at Starbucks. Um, but right now, just giving you art, just letting you know what we're about and why we do what we do, okay? You guys are gracious. Okay, the beast. So we go to the beast. Um, the way I would propose uh, is I would say I don't take a full symbolic meaning of everything in Revelation, just like historic, historic individuals in our way of thinking, which is called inaugurated eschatology, which means that the last days have begun. Our proposed beginning at the resurrection and the cross. That when Jesus died and rose from the dead, it's like that's where I beeline for all my, for all my information, my theology, my understanding about the world, evangelism, ministry, missions, the whole nine, and it takes me through to glory. Um, so when we talk about inaugurated eschatology, I don't think everything is symbolic. I would say, though, that the burden of proof in the book of Revelation is that the book starts off by using the word simino, okay? And I usually try to stay, not do all the Greek stuff in front of you. I do it in my own study. But I give you that word because it's very important to the first century Jew is that he was starting a book to say, look, this book is about signs. The book in itself and, and that's and if you if you and this is what makes it hard for me is because if you if we have a, a, a different hermeneutic then lights out. And that's why I'm doing topical arguments right now, because our hermeneutics might be different. And I can't we just don't have the time. We have the time constraints to argue hermeneutics, rules of biblical interpretation. I'm sorry. That's what that word means. Rules. of How do you interpret the Bible? OK. And, and like, for example, you know, you go to First Corinthians 13. This will give you an example of how how rules of biblical interpretation can mess us up. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, the great love passage. Um, if, if you go and you look at 1 Corinthians 13, 14 and 15, and he's talking about, um, you know, tongues and all this stuff, and you can go, well, see, we're, you know, if you have a hermeneutic where you're saying, oh, Paul's encouraging the church, and he says, tongues is for you. It's called to edify you. You're supposed to make you better. You're supposed to, right? And you go, see, don't you get that? But then you go, wait a minute. Okay, look at the scriptures. Do your research in the scriptures. When usually do you see Jesus encourage you to edify yourself? I propose to you that the role of the church is to edify the church. That, that our role is to edify each other. That, that, that the whole sense of like, it's all about, it's supposed to be about me, is kind of weird. Well, how do you get that? If you start the book in 1 Corinthians 13, not realizing the whole template is a book of discouragement and not encouragement, you'll come with that, with that conclusion. Does that make sense? If you don't understand that, he starts the book off in 1 Corinthians saying, I can't believe y'all. You sleeping with your mama. You doing this. You think you most spiritual. All y'all, like, the whole book is like, y'all crazy. If you realize that the whole book is a book of, he's saying, I'm so frustrated with how crazy you are, then it's going to change the way you view the text. Do you see that? But if you just come to it and you have a natural reading of it, and you just think, oh, yeah, it says I'm supposed to edify myself. I propose, no, that's sarcasm. He's saying... When y'all do this, y'all edifying yourself. And you're not supposed to edify yourself. You're supposed to edify the church. That's his point. 
just want to give you an example of how rules of interpretation really matters, how you matters your lens and what you're going to come away with. You still with me? All right, guys. Okay, don't stay with me, please. I'm like, stay with me. Okay, where's my... <laughs> oh, here it is. Okay, guys, here we go. So we got the beast. Is the beast a literal figure or figurative? Okay, very appropriate question. So there's two major camps. There's the figurative piece, which um, MacAv lands on. I'm extremely convinced of this, um, that he's trying to make a bigger point here. I'll explain in 10, ten seconds, in a couple minutes. And then you have the other camp, the beast, um, where it's, it's literal, that there's going to be, um, in apocalyptic time, uh, a, a, a nasty beast um, that's influencing things, and that we will see this beast um, clearly um, in one day. I would say one day for the sake of the argument, okay? But in a nutshell, is it figurative or literal? And just read the text here. I want to propose, now, scholarship don't argue that the beast, um, that this, uh, what we're going to see in Revelation, comes from Daniel 7. Now, notice this. It says, four great beasts, you guys, four great beasts, each different from others, uh, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was the second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat. Feel your flesh. Verse 6. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Um, after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was an, a fourth beast, okay? Terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, uh, and it had ten horns, okay? This is Daniel 7. Okay, the four beasts I propose to you. This is this is not this is not an argument. This, and this is normal. Think about it, even our day and age. I propose these four beasts in Daniel represent the four. These are the four conquering kingdoms that are going to happen between that time and the intertestamental period. Okay, and this is this is historic. And all this really happened. Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, and then you know when Alexander he conquered at the end, he Hellenized everything, and that's when you get to Matthew, the New Testament, as it were. Now you got synagogues. I mean, I'm sorry, you got um, yeah, you got synagogues, and you got Pharisees, and these people weren't in all these other times. Uh, there was like Hellenized, so now Greek was the culture of the day in the first century. So what happened in essence, Jesus was well, I'll say God was saying it through Daniel at that time uh, that these these creatures. Uh, were, were, were symbolic of, 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 of evil kingdoms. Now this, isn't, now, this isn't a debate in scholarship. This is just, it is what it is. Um, and we even see this today. I, um, like we, I think Russia was called like the Russian bear. Um, if you, I mean, we can go through different lands and talk about how you saw lands as, as like um, animal figures. Okay, this is how, this is how uh, we, can, we can talk about big lands. So, I would propose that's what's happening, that what was happening in Daniel 7. But look at Revelation 13:1. You have, and the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Okay? He had ten horns and seven heads. Now, they, now the, the historic argument is that this is a, this, these are literal beasts. Okay? I'm proposing to you that this is a, a symbolic super beast. I saw the beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, had feet like those of a bear, 
a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and throne and great authority. Okay, um, I don't know if I have it here. Um, okay, I'm sorry. What I had in my notes, I wanted to have highlighted because if you, go to, if you compare the two texts, every aspect of the beast, of the, the, the animal component of the beast in Daniel 7 is here in Revelation 13. Okay? The reason why that's important is because John is wanting you to understand is that theology in the scriptures, specifically in the New Testament, I'm trying to think of something in the New Testament that is just created in the New Testament. And I can't. I've been trying, guys. That every that the aspect of the New Testament all stems from something from the Old Testament. Is that he is bringing people in a narrative journey. And that he's taking things out of the Old Testament and saying, so here's what was happening here. here it's not, he's not just creating, oh, there's this beast. I'm proposing to you that he, while he makes it a super beast, um, he's saying, look, there is something that's going to happen in the end times. If Now, if it was symbolic then, which there's no debate, why would it not be symbolic now? And then, why would it be the same, like, have, like why would it be a lion, like they said, I mean, sorry, a leopard, like he said, a leopard, um, the bear, all the different things you see in Daniel 7 be in this text, unless he's trying to help you understand that in the last times, there's going to be this symbolic super kingdom, this super beast, this system that is going to be Satan's ally, Satan's boy, and it's going to deceive the nations. I keep losing this thing. I'm sorry. Okay. So here, here, here's where we're going, guys. You with me? I know there might be disagreement, but are you understanding what I'm saying at least? Okay, so let's look at some points. I would say, without exception, the image of the sea monster is used in the Old Testament to always represent evil kingdoms that persecute God's people. That's not up for debate. It is up for debate for the sake of argument. Is the, is the symbol um, in Revelation symbolic or literal? But this piece isn't up for debate, family. Now, sea is the symbol of chaos and of cosmic evil. Did everybody know that? When you see sea in the scriptures... An Old Testament, um, mainly because they didn't know, you know, we got some Navy men now here, and we know what's going on in the world, but they didn't know, you know when you look out in the ocean, and you can't see nothing but water? Now, we got maps and all this stuff. Back, back, way back in the day, they didn't know what was out there, so they were very scared of like, whoa, what's out there? You see, it was just dark. And so sea was always, so when, it, when, when people wrote, they wrote from the, the sea with the perspective of darkness and evil. And in essence, what God does, he takes that literary content, which I love our Lord, he takes our, almost our culture and then he does things to, to, to make a point. Um, you, ha, you have that being a home of the beast and the dragon, that's just clear again in Revelation. But notice something, remember in Revelation, at the end of Revelation, that's why the sea is actually taken out of the picture by the Lord. It's not that Jesus hates water, right? Notice your text. When you get into Revelation 20s, he takes out the, the sea. He said, and the sea is no more. We don't like water? No. He, he's saying evil in its essence. All the things you thought about when you thought about the sea, I'm done with. I've conquered. Symbolism. Um, persecution and deception, I'm, I'm proposing this. This is the reason why it's a super beast. Because he's trying to say persecution and deception are the two main weapons of the beast, okay? So it's not like, I don't, I'm saying it's not like this big nasty beast with ten eyes, you know, that just freaked me out to have a heart attack on the spot, you know? Like, it's not like that's what's going to kill me. What's going to kill me is me living a lie. That we go through life and we're deceived. And then the persecution of the saints, of individuals being persecuted. 
Now, I propose us, we in America, which you know, don't get me started here. I'll, I'll, I'm going to say something in a moment about us and the people here. And don't get all nervous. Think I'm going to get all patriotic on you. I'm not. Um, I want to share something very important. They are under the deception of the beast. America is under deception, even though they might not be under persecution. I just want to be very clear there. We, we forget, like, here's the thing. I'm saying, this, I'm saying that the beast, to be clear, is our world system. So, I'm, so what I'm saying is the reason why he makes this composite super beast is because he's saying that, you know what, you have this, this system, this system, this system. Man, what's going to happen is that after the resurrection, this whole wor- the whole world system, this whole, this whole order, the way the world works will be about deceiving you and persecuting you because you love Jesus. And the reason why, like that, the reason why it's scary is because we can go through life and not realize I'm proposing that we're probably one of the biggest beasts, America. Now, I know that's scary. I'm going to get some emails. But I'm telling you, if you travel overseas, you, I, I think it would be hard for you to shake your head no. Because the world takes our cues. They do what we do. America's the jump all over the world. Am I, I mean, if you've been overseas, am I, I mean, am I keeping it real? I mean, the shirts, I mean, you got cats in Africa walking around with 50 cent shirts. I know. So, so the, world, the world takes their cues from us. I mean, even their Christianity, either good or bad, you go to, you know, you start traveling and, and, and ministering to people in South America, you should see some of the stuff they're doing because they get it from us. Prosperity theology is huge and rampant in the world. Why? Where do you think it came from? came from America. That God is about blessing you and hooking you up and making you rich. That's from us. We're, and we go, well, man, oh, we're going we're gonna to send some missionaries out. We're so glad the people in India and all oh, those poor guys. Yeah, they're being persecuted, and we're sending guys out. We're sending the herd millers out. But let's be clear. The beast is doing his work here, too. And he's deceiving the nations. He's deceiving us and thinking that when you, whatever you watch on TV really doesn't matter. That whatever, you, whatever you're listening to, it doesn't matter. That, you know, you dog-eat-dog world, the way you do stuff here in America, taking the world value system, the, the system here in, in America, and eating it and saying, I'm, this is who I am, it doesn't matter. You're in America. We're being deceived. And I'm, I'm convinced that one of the reasons why Satan fights to make this a literal member figure so we can run around looking for a beast and not realize that we might be the beast. And we not not be serious and think of like, man, wait, am I being deceived? Am I taking the cues from the world? Or do I have on spiritual glasses and I'm looking with God's eyes and saying, wait a minute, you're not going to fool me. I'm going to have God's eyes here. I'm telling you guys, the book of Revelation is saying we got to wake up and don't be fooled by the beast. But don't look for some animal with a big old nasty tail. He's saying there's a composite world value system here. If you fall in love with money, you fall in love with the world system, we've, we've taken, in essence, the mark. There's some scripture references there, family. Um, uh, you can take those on your own time. These notes will be on, online. You can use them, okay? Point of the beast is not to focus on a destructive creature, but to understand the world in which we live. He wants you to understand the world in which we live. Am I clear? You can have some disagreements, but is at least the position clear? Okay. So what is the mark of the beast? So Eric, well, it's not, a mytholo- it's, not, it's not literal. So what's this mark? You guys heard of the mark of the beast? 
right, growing up, even when I wasn't a Christian, I just loved that crazy supernatural stuff. You don't get the mark, you know, you have these little things on your hand, you can't get wander wheat bread or whatever, you know, thing like that. Let's look at some things. Let me read, I'm just going to read through stuff like crazy, okay? You stick with me, okay, guys? All right, so um, this is Revelation 13, verses 16 through 18. We're starting in verse 16. It also forced all people, uh, we're talking about now, he's, he's, he's talking about this beast, Great and small, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. So you have, I mean, you, you, you have no idea of family, how many people have sat down, read this text, and said, oh, I need wisdom, and I'm supposed to calculate. And, man, you should see all the, all the derivatives and numbers and things that people try to create to understand and unlock the key to the number. I'm proposing to you his point isn't to unlock the key to the number. He's saying, like, people... If you have wisdom, you understand it's not about that. I'm trying to tell you there's a system that's getting you. So this, let me, they say, okay, okay, I hear you, but you're still not dealing with the number. Okay, let's deal with it. Okay. So you read 13, right? Okay. We're going to look at 7, 3, um, verses 3 through, I'm sorry, 7, verses 3 through 8. We're going to keep walking through. Do not harm. Now, here's what's interesting. The first reason why I, can, I, I would propose pragmatically that the beast um, it's symbolic and also for the world system, for the world in which we live. And the mark of the beast is also symbolic. And let me just be clear, because I feel like symbolism gets a bad rap. People think symbolism means you're, you're watering down the truth or you're watering down the intensity. I'm proposing for you that symbolism actually is more intense than the real. The reason why he has to make it symbolic is he's like, I can't explain this to you the real way. That's how intense this is. I am proposing to you that author's intent, when they make something symbolic, is to say it's too deep for you to get, even in real life. See, he's tricked us. You think symbolism is like, oh, you are making it all lofty. No, no, no. His point is, this is way deep for you to get. So i got to make it symbolic so you can see how more intense this is than what you even think. That's the point, historically, of symbolism. Just to set the record straight about what symbolism means. His point here isn't to dumb down. His point is to rise up and say, you need to be clear. You need to understand this, guys. So now notice. You notice you hear all the talk about Mark of the beast, right? One of the pragmatic reasons this is symbolic is because why do you never hear any talk about Mark of the believer? Have you heard? We get a Mark right here. There's way more Marks in the scriptures for believers then these beef people who can't buy bread and, and shop at Trader Joe's. Okay? Look at this. Do not harm the, he says, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all tribes of Israel. Of Israel. 14.1. Then I looked, and there before me was a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's names written on their foreheads. Okay, you never hear this. But why? Because people knowing that people aren't walking around as Christians with a big old Jesus on their head. Let me be careful. I don't want to make fun, guys. I'm just, I'm just trying to say, look, let's, just, let's, let's be holistic about this. 
If you're going to make all this bark about a symbol for the beast, you've got to talk about the people of God, because they talk more about the people of God having a symbol. Let me take you to Old Testament text. So look. So write those texts down. Ezekiel 9. That's where, that's where I propose Ezekiel 9 is the father of the imagery that John is coming from when he's talking about this mark. Again, scholarship both on both sides would agree with that. They disagree on their conclusions. Exodus 13, Deuteronomy 6. These all, guys, all these are symbolic. He's saying to these guys, I want you to wear the law like this, like on your head, on your hand. The reason why he picks those two, again, historically, if we, under, if we go to the historic understanding of the Old Testament, he's saying your hand is like when something's on your hand, it was this sense of ownership. Head and hand was ownership. All right. And it was like in your head was like like your belief system, everything you believe, like a heart issue. And on your hand was more of like how you pragmatically carried it out. And so the reason why he would always talk about even the mark of the beast being on your hand and on your head, because he's trying to say symbolically is not about you having a, a mark that you can see. He's saying that you might have the mark of the beast right now because your hands and your heart might be towards Satan. See, it makes no sense to think to yourself, I raise hell all the time, I dog people, I cheat and steal, I do all this stuff, but woo, I'm glad I don't have the mark of the beast. Do you see how silly that is? Somebody all crazy, and then the guy goes, would you like 666? Nah, man. But I'm going to still go over here and, you know, fornicate and do my thing. He going to go to heaven because he ain't get the mark of the beast? Like, we got to think through that. I'm proposing that, that it's all about it's symbolic, him saying, just as the people of God are going to get a mark, we get a symbolic mark that those texts are all, those are not literal texts. You go to those texts, none of my sleeve, those are all symbolic of understanding you're going to seal my people and I'm going to make sure you don't kill them because I'm going to do my thing. Okay? And his point there, I said, Old Testament sign on the hand and head was to remind them continually of their commitment and loyalty to God. See, I'm proposing, although not as sexy, it's real. And that is, he's saying, guys, people have my mark. You are sealed. And I'm proposing that the seal is to protect you from not external persecution, but so that you finish the race spiritually. We'll talk through that in a moment. The forehead represents ideological commitment and the hand, the practical working out of that commitment. That's his point. Now, here's the mark. I mean, here's the point, guys. I'm sorry. The mark of the beast is not a symbol on your body, but on your heart. That's the point. The point of the text is that these people, you had believers who had the mark of God because they were his people, and you had those who had the mark of the beast because they were Satan's people. And to not fool yourself, he says, hey, you need wisdom for this. Be wise now. Don't think you're okay because you ain't got something here. Be wise here. Be wise. Don't let the world fool you. Don't be Satan's toy and fool yourself thinking you're God's child. That's his point. Are we switching gears a little bit? So we've talked the beast. We've talked the symbol. And, and uh, again, I want to um, ask you to consider some, some resources um, we're still in the same, we're, we're, as far as understanding the content, I mean, again, there might be disagreements. You, you guys still with me? Okay, we're going to go a little longer, and then we're going to pray, and we're going we're gonna to worship our Lord. This is actually good news. Although intense, this is good news. Raining now. Okay. So, um, 
These are hard. The, big, the biggies for people, well, these are biggies, the, but, but, but we reigning now, we, us reigning now in Satan bound, man, that's what people just look at me and go, hoo-hoo, you crazy, you crazy. Because they just can't deal with the fact, like, well, how do you say we're reigning, Eric, man? I can't even pay my light bill. This is what reigning looks like? That's all I saw. The kings was kicking it. You know, that's what people think. And, and then the whole sense of Satan being bound. So I'm going to try and give you an old college try here, all right, just to help you understand the concept a little bit. And hopefully it'll help you at some level and, and, and encourage me in my heart in Christ. Or reigning now. So Jesus Christ, and, I, and what I did, I thought at home, because, I, again, I thought I fell off the, um, uh, the bull big time. I said, let me itemize things a little. Let me just put bullet points of what I would say. You know I never do this. But I said, let me move some bullet points, make sure I don't get crazy. So Jesus Christ being seated and symbolic, meaning his atoning work is complete and that Christ's offering is final. Um, guys, I, um, I was very, I thought I was gracious to you guys. There are so many texts in the scripture that talks about this reality. That, that what he did on the cross was final. Okay, that's where, that's where we're coming from. The scene is picturing deceased saints reigning in heaven. I propose, I propose that in, in chapter 7. Um, I propose that again in, in, in Revelation 20. Um, when, you, when you hear throne uh, in, the, uh, in Revelations particularly, the throne is almost all the time discussing a picture in heaven. And yet, Jesus is always saying that we're reigning there now. And that's in Ephesians. Ephesians 2. So priests also, I'm sorry, also the use of Satan's throne is not on earth, but located in the spiritual dimension. Um, like Satan having a throne. Uh, priests in reign, which, and I'm giving you these little caveats just to know, just help you understand that. We're literally, we're literally talking about the tip of the iceberg here. Because one of the things you've got to see in the book of Revelation, another thing that's happening here, guys, is, is, is the, the, the author is trying to help you see a parody here. And that is that you have the people of God who, who basically, you have Jesus who retells a story as a true Israel. Then he dies, he raised from the dead victorious. We retell that same story by living a life sacrificial as it is. We die and we rise from the dead to be, and be with our Lord. And then what we have is we have Satan being the evil guy. God, always upset because he could never be God. So what he does throughout the text here in Revelation is he, he does a parody on God. And that's why even in Revelation you have like the evil trinity. Okay, when you look at Revelation, you know you have your beast, you have the dragon, you have Satan, right? You have, you have, you have, you have, your, um, you have the evil trinity. There's all these different looks in, in, in Revelation where he is mocking God. Okay, that's why uh, when, whenever you see Jesus get a crown with ten horns, you'll see Satan has a crown with ten horns or something like that. Um, because he's trying to say, I'm trying to be like God, but, off, but, but in authenticity, um, all that happens is to his demise, he becomes perished, he dies, and then, say, and then I'm sorry, Jesus reigns forever. So, so you have priest and reign is a promise based on Exodus. We, um, you can write those down, which is applied to the whole community of saints. I say that real quick because, okay, there's a thing here. We're going to talk about Israel. So, so priest and reign... Um, and my heart here is if I can hit some of the arguments of dispensationalism and show that some of the problems, my heart is that we at least have to struggle and wrestle through some of this. Priest in the reign. Being a priest is huge for a Jew. Okay? Jesus calls us his priests. If, if I'm a Jew, that would be really weird to me if, unless I knew that they were part of the covenant people. If, they, if they're supposed to have two destinies, I would, I would try to wonder, well, how do they get... Maybe more than me even because it says I'm co-heir reigning with Christ as, as a covenant member, as I'm a believer. And if, a, if I'm that in Christ, if as a believer I get to reign with Jesus, then 
why would it, there be two destinies for Israel and one a destiny for Israel and one for the church, um, unless unless that's wrong, unless they all are the people of God? Because I'm proposing he gives priests and reign to make clear to the Jew, hey, you're no better um, or no worse than these New Testament Christians. And hey, Christians, you're not a second tier believer because you're not a first century Jew. Um, but he, he applies this to the whole community of saints, all those who say yes to Jesus. Um, the rest of the dead um, reigning now in, in, in 25 clearly are those who will not be protected from the second death. You turn to 20 verse 5. I had a discussion with one of my friends here, and we were talking about this. I, I just think this is interesting. So he talks about the rest of the dead. And so the argument in, in Revelation 20 is when you have these, this thousand-year reign that there's a certain group of people who will be reigning, not all believers. But... He says in this text here that the rest of he says that the rest of the dead would not be protected from the second from the second death. Well, the people who are not protected from the second death are they they um, they must be all unbelievers, because believers are protected from the second death. So that means all the other people had to be believers, which means it couldn't have been a certain selection of the covenant community. It had to be the whole covenant community. Does that make sense there? I think I, I lost some of you guys a little bit. Okay. <laughs> okay, so, so when he says, um, man, if you can turn to Revelation real quick. When he says in Revelation 25, the rest of the dead, I'm saying he's talking about unbelievers. Okay, so you have the dead who are raised, I, would, I propose, are all believers, or it has to be, because he says the rest of the dead, everyone else, um, are those who will not be protected by the second death, and hence must be unbelievers. Um, for the second time, y'all don't get it. I'm just going to chalk that one up as falling off the bull and get right back on, all right? All right. Um, <laughs> so here, check this out. The faithful are promised a seat on the throne of the Lamb. This is uh, all the covenant people. So my point, here, my point here is that at the resurrection is when we begin to reign with Christ. Okay? Revelation 3.21, Matthew 19.28. Look at, look at some text here. Ephesians 2. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Okay? It's not a future thing. This is, he's saying that this happened at, like, when we love Jesus. This is what, this is what God has done. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15. Then the end will come when, his hand, when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father uh, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. My point is uh, we have when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father and has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. That he's coming back. When I talk about 1 Corinthians, you see me talk about 1 Corinthians 15 a ton of times. Is that he is reigning and then what he's going to do is he's going to hand the kingdom over to the Father and then he's going to fully get away, deal with the things that he's already bound. Um, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Continue the passage. So he has already bound people, okay? He's going to fully destroy them, but notice what it says there. It says, before all that, he's what? He's reigning. You see that? He will reign, and then he'll put his enemies under his feet. Okay? My point is he's reigning now. Uh, Colossians 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with his regulations that was against us and stood opposed, um, opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. You see that? 
Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. You see that language there? Triumphing over them by the cross. This is, this is, rain, this is him doing this at the cross and resurrection, guys. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. Um, yeah, amen. Let me just... So obviously there's text. I'm going I'm to have this online for you guys. Um, just for the sake of time, I want to make sure I don't go through Christ has begun to reign over earthly kings. Notice that Peter sees God's, I'm in, I'm in A right here. Peter sees God's promise to David is already having been fulfilled. I want you to notice those texts when you go home. Again, go online, macab.com. Get this study for yourself, okay, guys? Um, already being fulfilled in James. If Christ is reigning, then you are reigning with him. Satan wants you to believe you are not reigning. I'm proposing the point here is that he writes the book of Revelation to say, hey, guess what? I get it. I understand it in the natural realm. The tendency is for you to me to think that we're not reigning. And that's what Satan's job is, for us to be deceived daily because of the journey in our life, because of the brokenness, for you to question, man, not, not even are you reigning, but man, is Christ really reigning? Because if Christ isn't reigning, then you can't be reigning. That's really where he's going. It's not really about us. And so he questions Christ's reign. Is Christ really on the throne? I'm proposing Christ is saying, well, let me, read, let me articulate something. I am reigning, and I told, that, I told you that you reign with me. So if I'm reigning, you're reigning right now. You go, well, but where's my, where's my bling? Where's my, you know, where's my Rolex, platinum Rolex? Where's my, where, you know, where's my stuff at? You know? And he goes, no, so you don't get it. See, how did, how did Christ conquer the world? How did Christ destroy his enemies? Not by being a conquering lion, but being a sacrificial murdered lamb. He says, in the same way, that's how you will reign. And see, that's not sexy. He said, that's how you and I reign in this life. We give our lives sacrificially. The world looks at you and laughs and says, look at that deadbeat. I'm, I'm running laps around him in the eyes of the world. I got my money. I'm paid. I'm doing all this stuff, all my notorieties in the world. And look at this guy. He's just saying, Jesus, Jesus, and telling other people about Jesus and giving his money and being sacrificially caring. And everyone's laughing and thinking you're goofy. And then God says, one day I will validate you. And I will show the world that you actually had it all together and they didn't. That's the life of faith. That one day God will validate you and say, no, you were right. And far be it, the world was wrong. And so life is like Satan saying, no, you're not reigning. Look at the death. Look at her crash into a pole. Little girl dies. Jesus isn't reigning and you're not reigning with him. And if we have to renew our mind and understand something, is that we suffer in this age. And what God has promised us, and I'll talk about next week if you give me the chance, is that what God is saying is I have not protected you from physical abuse and physical harm and physical persecution. But spiritually, you will make it to the end because your Father will protect you. I'm really trying to get emotional up here. I don't know why every week. Okay, um... For the sake of time, I want to go through true Israel. This is another biggie, guys. So the, the concept is this, is that you have this beautiful land of people who God gives a promise to, the promise of recreation to the world, and says, I want you to go and tell the world that, that, that God is king, and what he does, and I'm not going to go through this, I'm just setting it up for next week, um, is that, hey, but, uh, and they were supposed to be a light on the hill, but what happened was it, uh, they weren't. 
Okay, and then all throughout this time, the, the, the argument is this, is that uh, because God has, the, Israel is the chosen people, that there's a special place, there's a special destiny for Israel, and, there's a, and then God is so gracious, he lets the other, he lets the, the covenant people, the, the Gentiles come in, and there's going to be a special place for the church. So there's these two trajectories that we are running on. And what I'm proposing to you, and man, I'm hoping you will believe me, is that, no, there's one destiny. There's always been a remnant of people, and that's why I propose he chose a messed up people in Israel, they're not all that. They filed two. And he chose them and said, I'm going to choose these crazy people. And in this ethnic group, there will be believers and unbelievers in this ethnic group. And so then what will happen is in that ethnic group, there will be a remnant. And what he's trying to do all throughout history is help us understand the concept of remnant, is that we have a whole body here of church people. And some of y'all are not saved. And that's okay. But just because you're in this room don't mean you're a Christian. And I get that. And that's why we preach here lordship. I don't preach the assumption that all y'all saved. And no, when Jesus, when God writes in the scriptures, people say, oh, he wrote, he wrote to all Christians in Corinthians. I'm like, that's a trip. You're crazy. No, Paul wrote to professing believers. <laughs> all right? You are professing until Jesus says your faith is real. I don't know. I don't know where you are. Only you and Jesus. And that's called enduring to the end. You go, well, can I lose my salvation? No. If you're a Christian, you'll go to heaven. I'm just telling you I'm a man. I don't know if you're a believer. And what he does all throughout time is he continues to have a remnant that he says, you know what? You're going to see the people almost be destroyed, and then I'm going to bring them and save a remnant. And you're going to see people almost get destroyed, and I'm going to save a remnant. And then even in the New Testament, Jesus comes. He grabs a remnant, as it were. You know what those disciples were? A remnant. He's saying, what I'm going to do, all these crazy people, I'm going to grab a people and I'm going to say, you're my people now. Now proclaim and do, take the keys of the kingdom and do what you were supposed to do back then. I'm true Israel. Where Israel has failed, I have passed. We can go through that next week. And what I want you to do is proclaim the gospel. And what you're doing is you're taking people and they're being grafted into a history as true Israel. Because he talks about this in the scripture. He says it clear as day. I don't, I mean, these guys are smarter than me, but I'm telling you, God has been gracious for us to, to understand this part. I don't get it. He says clear as day that just because you're a part of Israel doesn't mean you're part of Israel. That's what he says. His point there is it doesn't matter if you were born in a piece of land. It doesn't matter if your ethnicity is Israel. If you were a Jew, because the real Jews are those who are circumcised in their hearts, not in their private parts. That's his point. That's his point. And that's why it's also it's flawed to think that one day he's saying that Jesus, don't, the whole world is God's. That's why he says the earth is mine and the fullness thereof. He's not coming back to say, oh, and this little area right here is so blessed. His point is that area allowed me to bust into the kingdom. That's where I set my foot in to rule the whole world. And far be it, I propose to you that the promised land for the people of God is not a place like that. It's the whole creation. The whole earth is ours. Because it's our kings. I'm going to pause there. Hey, guys, let's worship the Lord because that's good news. That's good news that we don't earn that. We don't help with this new creation piece. He brings it to us as a gift, just like he brought the first promised land. He's bringing the, the final promised land. All of this is for his glory and our delight. And although we can argue, Jesus is our king. But I'm telling you, it does matter how you think about what God is doing in your life and in creation. 
So guys, let's worship. Let's stand up. Can you get up? And let's, let's just worship our king for who he is. Guys, I know there's a lot of questions. I know that I didn't get to fill in everything. But I hope you encourage with a couple key things, guys. And hear me here. I hope you encourage with first and foremost that God is doing something with the people of God. That you, I hope you are humbled in understanding this reality of the beast. Please leave saying, man, I want to ask the Holy Spirit to allow me to look at the world as he looks at the world. And I hope you are encouraged that God has ushered us as true Israel by his grace. And so both Jews and Gentiles alike, those who have been called to Christ, um, get to experience him in glory forever.